I think if you take a step back, you can see that at the federal level, the cannabis industry is still highly political. I feel like that last sentence could apply to almost anything in 2023. This is a highly political topic. And so the pendulum swings, but it swings more in the middle. In other words, when the administration turns over, we're not seeing 100% prosecution versus 100% legalization at the federal level. Things are going back and forth a bit, but staying a bit in the middle so that both political parties can keep their base happy and not overcorrect too far. So I think what we're likely to see over the next presidential election cycle is potentially a little bit more change in that way and a bit more movement. Welcome to A Higher Law, a cannabis podcast from the Dykema Law Firm. I'm your co-host, Jennifer Beidel, a partner at Dykema and a member of the firm's government investigations and corporate compliance practice. And I'm Mark Chutko, leader of Dykema's government investigations and corporate compliance practice. Pleased to be here. For more podcast episodes, you can find us at dykemapodcast.com youtube.com backslash Law, or by searching A Higher Law wherever you get your podcasts. So I'll start things out. On today's episode, we'll be discussing federal enforcement trends in the area of cannabis. We're going to first talk about the Department of Justice's evolving policies and priorities in the marijuana enforcement over the past 10 years, starting with the administration of President Obama and continuing through President Trump and now President Biden. Then we're gonna talk about how federal policy and enforcement status impacts the financial and banking sectors as they service the marijuana industry. And finally, we'll touch on some congressional and judicial activities related to the expansion of marijuana in the states. So I'll, I'll start things off by talking about DOJ, the Department of Justice. For over about 50 years now, since 1970, marijuana has remained what's called a Schedule I controlled substance. That means it's subject to federal criminal laws relating to its manufacture and distribution. About 10 years ago in 2013, the Deputy Attorney General under uh, President Barack Obama, Jim Cole, issued a memo to all federal prosecutors, and it limited the enforcement of the federal criminal laws in states that have legalized marijuana and that have created strong and effective regulatory and enforcement systems for marijuana. But importantly, uh, Deputy Attorney General Cole had carved out certain exceptions uh, where prosecutors may continue to enforce the laws against marijuana. Those included um, prosecutions against businesses who divert marijuana from states where it's legal to states where it's illegal, and uh, businesses whose revenues or operations uh, are linked to enterprises, criminal enterprises, cartels, gangs, or trafficking and other illegal drugs. And finally, uh, prohibitions remained against businesses that sold marijuana to minors. So that remained in effect for about five years until President Trump was elected and his newly installed Attorney General Jeff Sessions in 2018 revoked the Cole memo and he returned to the marijuana enforcement regime uh, previously. Uh, in other words, leaving it up to prosecutorial discretion 
based on principles of federal prosecution that you can find in the justice manual. Now, while this may have seemed like a seismic shift, in reality, there were very few prosecutions against cannabis companies and businesses during the Trump administration um, that so long as they were operating in compliance with state marijuana laws. Um, so Jen, I'll turn it over to you to discuss how marijuana is being addressed in the Biden administration. So in the Biden administration, you would certainly have expected a shift back from the Sessions memo back to the Cole memo to match the change of administrations. It's not quite that simple. So what happened in the Biden administration is essentially that Attorney General Merrick Garland has signaled several times in Senate testimony that he plans to reinstate the Cole memorandum, but he hasn't actually done it yet. So he's made statements that really mirror the language of the Cole memo. Criminalizing the use of marijuana has contributed to mass incarceration and racial disparities and a whole other host of horribles from his perspective. He doesn't think it's a good use of DOJ's resources to pursue these kinds of prosecutions, particularly where state laws are being complied with. He's pointed out the same exceptions that exist in the Cole memo, like we don't want to support, obviously, large-scale illicit drug trafficking or access to drugs by minors. But we do want to focus our attention on violent crimes and other crimes that endanger society much more than marijuana. So all of that is essentially a summary of the Cole memo. But yet, there hasn't actually been an action taken by the Biden administration to reinstate the Cole memo. A couple of months ago in March, the beginning of March of 2023, Senator Cory Booker essentially called out Attorney General Garland on that point during some Senate Judiciary testimony. So the senator basically summarized the Attorney General's prior positions, suggesting that the Cole memo be reinstated and said, but what's the current state of the review of cannabis at the Justice Department? And the Attorney General again said, we expect to reinstate the Cole memorandum, but we're doing other things right now, like commuting sentences and doing scientific analyses of marijuana in HHS and working on the crack versus powder cocaine disparity. And so it's coming, but not yet. So where does that leave us? I think according to analysts that are experts on these topics, they say that they don't envision the Cole memorandum being reinstated during this Biden administration, but that if there's a second Biden term, they would expect in that sort of lame duck phase for the administration to then reinstate the Cole memo. So what if we get another Republican administration or another Donald Trump administration? In that case, we're probably back to Sessions memo-like guidance. But as Mark said, under the prior Sessions memo, we didn't really see a lot of prosecution of cannabis businesses or individuals, even though that guidance was in place. If we're talking about a lame duck Trump administration, would we then see additional prosecutions under a Sessions memo type administration? It remains to be seen. Uh, but that's sort of the potential lay of the land there. So, Jen, how is the current state of affairs uh, in terms of uh, legalization of marijuana impacting the financial and banking sectors? In the financial and banking sectors, when cannabis initially started to become legal at the state level, 
the main problem was the cannabis businesses couldn't get bank accounts because of anti-money laundering regulations and lack of deposit insurance and some other risks. And so we were talking about an industry that was operating primarily in cash, which obviously increases a lot of risks. You know, there are safety risks of transporting a lot of cash. There are issues with payment of taxes and other sort of tracking of transactions. And so from a federal government standpoint, it does make some sense that as these businesses become legal on a state level, that we go to a more traditional form of banking or financial regulation than the cash business. So there's a currently pending bill called the Secure and Fair Enforcement Banking Act of 2021 or the Safe Banking Act of 2021. That bill would essentially prohibit federal banking regulators from penalizing banks for providing services to state legal cannabis businesses. So it would do things like preventing regulators from eliminating those banks' deposit insurance, from stopping them from providing services to cannabis businesses. And the law would say taking proceeds from a state legal cannabis business is not an unlawful activity subject to anti-money laundering regulations. The state of that law, though, is it's still pending. It was passed by the House, but the Senate hasn't passed it yet. And analysts say that they don't see that act actually passing the Senate anytime soon because not enough Republican leaders are on board with the act. So we remain in a state financially where cannabis businesses can and do struggle to get certain types of financing. The good news there is the inability to get a bank account is largely removed by statements from other regulators so, for example, the FDIC chairman, Jelena McWilliams, recently spoke to a group of bankers and said that essentially, even though marijuana is illegal federally and she can't give blanket immunity from enforcement of the industry, she thinks it's her view that if the bankers do appropriate due diligence based on state requirements and if they follow the suspicious activity reporting or SAR requirements, then there's unlikely to be federal enforcement against banks for accepting accounts from cannabis-related businesses. There's been some recent enforcement actions that reflect a similar view. So there was a, a Michigan credit union that had about 150 marijuana-related accounts. They failed to do their SAR reporting in the appropriate way. And rather than saying, hey, look, you, you messed up your SAR reporting. You can't have any cannabis-related clients. Essentially, the regulators just pulled their future ability to add cannabis-related clients based on that regulatory failure, but didn't take away their past cannabis accounts. So that's another suggestion that regulators aren't really looking to pull cannabis accounts at this point. The question is, does that solve the problem? The answer is not really. So even if you can get an account as a cannabis-related business, that account is far more expensive than other bank accounts because of the high compliance costs associated with banks having cannabis-related accounts. So at a high level, the Treasury Department's FinCEN unit has issued guidance on when you have to do suspicious activity reporting as a bank when you transact business with a marijuana business. And 
that FinCEN guidance essentially says if you have any clients who are involved in any kind of a marijuana related business, you have to do SARS for that work and you have to split those SARS into three categories, which are marijuana limited, marijuana priority and marijuana termination. And essentially that's a spectrum from the least serious marijuana limited, which says we're, we're interacting with a marijuana business, but it's not one that violates any of, any of the priorities of the Cole Memorandum or otherwise violates state law. That's on the one side. On the other side, the most serious marijuana termination is a business that has some kind of anti-money laundering compliance problem that's significant enough that it would suggest that the bank needs to terminate the relationship with that business. And so Banks have to do all of these SARS for their marijuana-related clients, and they have to make sure that the SARS fall into the appropriate category under the FinCEN guidance. So that's a lot of work that a bank needs to do that results in more employees and more SARS and more work, and all of those costs are passed on to the consumers relating uh, to the marijuana business, and then they have high account costs. There's also an issue remaining with legacy cash, the cash from marijuana-related businesses that they took in prior to being able to get a bank account. Anti-money laundering laws still apply to all of that cash. And so if you are a marijuana-related business, you go to a bank, you bring a bunch of cash, the bank has to trace all of that and determine it comes from a legal source or is otherwise compliant. And so you could still have a problem where you can't deposit the cash that's left over. In terms of accepting money from consumers at your business, there's still a lack of access to the major credit and debit card companies, MasterCard, Visa, Amex, Discover, all of them still prohibit marijuana-related transactions. And so do Venmo and PayPal and Cash App and some of the newer alternatives. If they figure out you're doing marijuana-related business, they shut it down. So that's led some folks to react to say, well, okay, if they catch us, we're shut down. Can we make this look like an innocuous, non-cannabis related transaction? Can we tinker with the merchant codes to try to get it passed? Uh, you can, but that's also bank fraud. And some people have found themselves prosecuted as a result of that. So there's really not a legal way to try to circumvent those payment restrictions. People then continue in, in search of alternatives. This is a big industry. People want to be able to provide a way to process money for this industry. So the cashless ATM trend happened for a bit. A cashless ATM is basically like an ATM that dispenses cannabis in a way. You go into a cannabis dispensary, you put in your ATM card, and instead of getting cash, you get cannabis. That worked for a while. And then the card processors and debit card companies got wise to it and said, this is, this is not an appropriate workaround. And so we're shutting that down. So we're still left largely with cash processing or checks as the alternative uh, for payment there. And the, the last remaining limitation really from a banking standpoint is that even if you can go to a bank and get an account as a cannabis business, you're unlikely to be able to get lending or to be able to finance your operation at that same bank because 
there's no bankruptcy protections existent for cannabis businesses. The banks can't repossess the inventory in the form of cannabis. So the lending risks for cannabis businesses still remain too high, even if you can go get an account. So really at a high level, absent the passage of safe, things are getting a bit better in terms of the ability to get bank accounts and not have to be 100% in cash, but there still are significant financial barriers to operating your cannabis business as you would any other business. Mark, I'll turn it back over to you to, to talk about some other congressional and judicial limitations on cannabis businesses that we see coming down the pike. Thanks, Jen. While we wait for further action by the Treasury Department, the Department of Justice, and other agencies of the executive branch, there has been other activity uh, by both Congress and the courts that should be noted. Uh, first, uh, every year, every fiscal year since 2015, Congress has included a provision in its Appropriations Acts, which specifically prohibits the Department of Justice from using appropriated funds to prevent states from implementing laws authorizing medical marijuana, its use, its manufacture, its cultivation. And this has immediately spurred litigation, uh, particularly in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which it governs the West Coast of the United States. In 2016, so a year after that first appropriations rider, in a case called U.S. versus McIntosh, the Ninth Circuit held that criminal defendants can actually seek injunctions against the Department of Justice from prosecuting defendants if the prosecution interferes with a state's implementation of its medical marijuana laws under that rider. Uh, later cases, mostly in the Ninth Circuit, have clarified that it is the criminal defendant is the one who has the burden of showing that they complied with their state medical marijuana laws before they can seek an injunction or successfully seek one. Um, in 2019, a number of federal cases, uh, including cases in Michigan, addressed the dilemma that defendants face when meeting this burden of proof. Uh, as you can imagine, one of the best ways to show that you've complied with state medical marijuana laws is to explain it to the judge by testifying in a pretrial hearing, um, hearing in support of the injunction. Uh, the Michigan courts said that if you testify, that testimony can be used against you by the government uh, in a later trial if you don't succeed on the injunction. Um, so obviously that creates some risk for defendants um, because their Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination does not create use immunity from their testimony later at trial. There have been some other challenges for criminal defendants um, on what level of compliance they have to show in order to obtain an injunction like this. In the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, they've held that defendants must show strict compliance with medical marijuana laws. The First Circuit Court of Appeals in the East Coast has indicated that uh, criminal defendants are not re required to show strict compliance, but they um, will enforce the congressional bar if the defendant only had minor technical violations of state law. So far, the uh, writer has not had sizable impact on federal prosecutions, and this is likely due to a number of factors. 
first, uh, the Department of Justice ordinarily goes after fairly egregious violations of the marijuana laws, uh, gross violations of licensing laws where the operation is basically a sham for illicit drug activity. The uh, second factor is that the rider bars only uh, the rider bar only applies to medical marijuana. So many businesses are engaged now in the manufacture and distribution of marijuana for recreational use in states that authorize it, not just medical marijuana use. And finally, the rider doesn't provide immunity from prosecution. So if Congress was later to allow the rider to lapse, the federal government could still prosecute past cases that fall within the statute of limitations. And so all of these factors together create a lot of uncertainty in the industry. So in terms of takeaways from all of that, I think if you take a step back, you can see that at the federal level, the cannabis industry is still highly political. I feel like that last sentence could apply to almost anything in 2023. This is a highly political topic. And so the pendulum swings, but it swings more in the middle in other words, when the administration turns over, we're not seeing 100% prosecution versus 100% legalization at the federal level. Things are going back and forth a bit, but staying a bit in the middle so that both political parties can keep their base happy and not overcorrect too far. So I think what we're likely to see over the next presidential election cycle is potentially a little bit more change in that way and a bit more movement. I certainly think that the legalization of marijuana on the state level is pressuring the federal government, both in terms of Congress and in terms of the presidential administrations to make some changes, to make the industry operate in a more functional and typical way, rather than in this sort of sticky quagmire-like state that we've been in for quite a while now. So that's it for us today. Thank you for listening. As always, you can find us at dykemapodcast.com, youtube.com backslash dykemalaw, or by searching a higher law wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Jennifer Vital. And I'm Mark Chucko. And we look forward to seeing you next time on a higher law.